Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's July 2016. Then-FBI Director James Comey gives a press conference, explaining that while he's recommended that the Justice Department not pursue charges against Hillary Clinton for her mishandling of classified information, Clinton's conduct was extremely careless. With respect to potential computer intrusion by hostile actors, we did not find direct evidence that Secretary Clinton's personal email domain in its various configurations since 2009 was hacked successfully. But given the nature of the system and of the actors potentially involved, we assess we would be unlikely to see such direct evidence. It is possible that hostile actors gained access to Secretary Clinton's personal email account. Evidence has never surfaced that Clinton's email account was compromised. But a Republican political operative named Peter Smith becomes obsessed with the idea that Russia might have gained access. He spends the next year trying to get a hold of Clinton emails that he believes Russia has hacked. But Smith never gets to see what special counsel Robert Mueller makes of his efforts, because a year later, he dies by suicide. This is a bonus episode of The Report. We've just finished volume one of our podcast, bringing to life Robert Mueller's report on Russian election interference. In a few weeks, we'll be back with new episodes on Volume 2 of the Mueller Report, covering President Trump's efforts to obstruct the Russia investigation. But while we start working on Volume 2, we've put together some bonus episodes, digging deeper into aspects of the report that we weren't able to include in the podcast. This week, Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes will be interviewing Washington Post reporter Shane Harris on the strange story of Peter Smith. After it was revealed, that Hillary Clinton was using a private email server while she was Secretary of State. Peter Smith became, I think it's fair to say, mildly obsessed by this notion. Throughout 2016, the Trump campaign expressed interest in Hillary Clinton's private email server and whether approximately 30,000 emails from that server had in fact been permanently destroyed as reported by the media. My initial conversations with them were really trying to make that point. You know, this is the Russian government. You really don't want to play this game. And they were absolutely convinced that they needed to get these emails in order to damage Hillary Clinton. And they really didn't care whether or not this was really the Russian government or whether they were being duped. If you haven't already listened to episode three, go back and listen now. This interview won't make much sense without it. In the episode where we talked about Peter Smith, there's uh, a couple of things we didn't talk about. And one is that it uh, Peter Smith did not survive to the end of the Mueller investigation. Uh, and the circumstances of his death were about as peculiar as the circumstances of the caper that uh, you reported on. So 
How did Peter Smith die, and how does his death relate to the story that you reported? Well, he died at his own hand. He committed suicide um, in what I think initially struck people as a very odd and even suspicious kind of fashion, but actually turns out to not be all of that suspicious or perhaps all that odd. Turned out that Peter Smith had been ill. Uh, He had not, as far as I know, signaled his intentions to anybody to commit suicide, but he left a note indicating that he had a life insurance. I think it was an annuity um, and that there were some issues associated with that that led investigators to conclude that he believed that if he killed himself, there would essentially be an insurance payout to his family. Now, he did leave a note that said, uh, in all capital letters, uh, no foul play whatsoever. <laughs> Which, Which, if, you know, you know <clears throat> can only raise sure. questions. Right, yeah, like, because that's exactly what you think the Russians or Hillary Clinton would do. And what um, <clears throat> do you uh, think, if any, the relationship is between his death and the story? I mean, he was in touch with you up to a couple of weeks before, or a couple of days, yeah. right, before he died. Yeah. He's kind of, he seems to be got two things on his mind, Hillary, recovering Hillary Clinton's emails and dying. Yeah. I've thought a lot about this since I found out that he died. And I didn't learn he had died until quite some time after I'd interviewed him because I'd spoken to him. The interview came on sooner than I had thought that it might in my reporting process. And my intention was, we'll do this interview, I'll continue reporting, then I'll come back to him. So sometime later, I find out that he had died, like I think within 10 days of talking to me. Um, And, you know, I've sort of puzzled over the seeming contradiction. You had somebody who, when I spoke to him, was enthralled with this mission that he was on to get these emails, talking up his connections to the campaign. He even said to me at the end of the interview, you know, I really want to stay in touch with you because this is really just the first chapter of many to come here. And giving every indication that he intended to see this through uh, to the end of, uh, of this quest that he was on. Um, at the same time, I've wondered, did he have thoughts of suicide? I mean, it can't be inside his mind, but did he think this is something he wanted to kind of be on record one time before he went so that there was, uh, you know, a... a uh, kind of a testimony, perhaps, as to as to what he did and why he did it. I mean, I honestly don't know. He found out that I was looking into him, and then he reached out and contacted me preemptively. So that is a signal of some, I think, willingness on his part and desire to talk. But I thought we were going to have a conversation again a couple of months down the road. I, I said, so I'm, I'm sort of puzzled by it, um, you know. Having known people who have taken their own life, it can often be very sudden, but his appears to be quite premeditated in the way that he did it. It's just, it's, it's, it's still a mystery to me. It's really puzzling. So unlike a lot of people who were involved in the Trump-Russia stuff, uh, who lied about it, who were at some level seemed to have some consciousness of the impropriety of it, um, and who therefore misrepresented it. You know, Peter Smith heard you were working on this, and he calls you up. He's kind of pleased with himself. Oh, he's thrilled. And he had no sense of it as uh, inappropriate or or wrong. And in fact, Matt Tate, in the episode that we uh, 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 aired, 
you know, talked about how one of his, uh, you know, he was the, the, the sort of technical consultant that Peter Smith tried to recruit, and that one of the things that he was really struck by was that these people didn't actually seem to have any concept that what they were doing was wrong. Um, I'm interested in your sense of Peter Smith's sense of what he was doing. He seemed like kind of a happy warrior about the whole thing. Absolutely. I mean, and there was no look. He felt that this is this is campaign. It's all is fair. Um, uh, you know, he never described it as sort of dirty tricks, but uh, in the sort of Roger Stone sense. Although he said he was a friend of Roger Stone. He actually at one point told me he said. Uh, I think Roger Stone was a good operator, or a good, how do you, what he said, a good operator who, quote, has lost his fastball. Um, so he seemed to think that he was more skilled at the game of political uh, dirty tricks than Roger Stone was and kind of held himself up in, in the same appear uh, to him. You know, this is the guy, Peter Smith, who in the 1990s was funding David Brock, the conservative activist and journalist, to dig up information on. Uh, Bill Clinton, this is the guy who started a legal defense fund for Arkansas State Troopers who were going to come public and accuse the uh, then-Governor Clinton of enlisting them to procure women for him to have extramarital affairs with. I mean, you're talking about a guy who was down in the trenches, or maybe some people would say the gutter, of straight-up partisan warfare on some of the biggest battlefields for the past couple of decades. Happy Warrior, I think, as you put it, is exactly how he saw himself. And not an ounce of shame in any of this, by the way. And this was, this was all information that was on the record. He was happy to talk about it. He saw this when he talked to me. It was very clear as an opportunity to alert the world to the fact that Hillary Clinton's emails, her deleted emails, were out there on the dark web. I mean, there was no irony to this pitch he was really saying like oh thank goodness a reporter from the wall street journal is interested in this now's my opportunity to tell the world one of the curious things about the Mueller reports charging decisions with respect to the hacking and dumping operation is that there's you know after laying out this whole story in quite a lot of detail in fact a whole lot more detail than you guys yeah. were able to get at the time Mueller it really substantially advances the ball on this story and this and actually lays it at the president's individual door right mm -hmm. that that Flynn is responding directly to a, a a request by the candidate himself this whole episode doesn't show up at all in his contemplation of the charging decisions and you know you, you he thinks about like to what extent is there a any coordination between the Russian hacking operation, the Russian dumping operation, and the campaign. But in thinking about that, he doesn't come up, he doesn't address this episode at all. And I've kind of scratched my head about this because this is the episode where, you know, the attempt at collusion or whatever you want to call it is really clearest. The president or the candidate at the time goes on, you know, his his press conference and says, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you can find these Hillary Clinton emails. Press will reward you. And then he turns to Michael Flynn and says, go get him. You know, <laughs> go get him, Mike. Go get him, Mike. And then this episode arises out of that. Um, why do you think when push comes to shove and he's actually thinking about charging people, 
this episode is not at the front of his mind. I guess it's because in the end, Peter Smith didn't actually acquire any emails. Um, In the sense that, you know, paying for knowingly hacked material, although we should say he did have samples of emails that the supposed Russian hackers he was in touch with told him are uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, honest-to-goodness emails from her server, and he looked at them and had his technical advisors review them and determined they were not. So perhaps it's that he did not actually follow through with the, you know, making the payment for the material and then disseminating it. But then I think, okay, well, I mean, like, 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 let's use the Al-Qaeda example, right? The FBI all the time gives would-be suicide bombers fake bombs that they think are bombs, and then they go and they push the trigger and the bomb doesn't go Yeah, I mean, there's off. no quicker way to get indicted for, a ta- <laughs> you know, for conspiracy right. than to <clears throat> meet with a fake Al-Qaeda operative about a fake terrorist plot and receive some fake weapon. Uh, uh, you know, the, that's a that's a known FBI uh, uh, operation. Uh, repeated, you know, a lot of rinse and repeats yeah. on that one. But if it's fake Russian hackers and fake emails, is it then sort of too trivial to think about it? This May, way? Maybe so. I mean, you know, look, it's also possible he was talking to real hackers who just happened not who weren't Russian, who had stolen emails that maybe weren't Hillary Clinton's. One theory I've heard people espouse is that these may have been people who were just pulling information off of the web that had already been released through the FOIA litigation through the State Department, and they were just sort of, you know, trying to pass that off to this old man as, as, as you know. I, I honestly don't know, and Mueller doesn't address this. Um, and one other possibility is Peter Smith was dead, and, you know, you can't charge a dead guy. Uh, but there were people who were working with him in this conspiracy, if you want to think of it, or this scheme, if we want to not use the term conspiracy. Um I mean, maybe it is a matter of it being trivial, but what I've always thought is, you know, Mueller very clearly says he could not establish you know, evidence that, you know, that clearly showed a conspiracy to collude with the Russians or to interact with the Russians. But it sure seemed to me that this instance very purely and clearly showed the intent on the part of the campaign, which was to, by any means necessary, obtain Hillary Clinton's emails. Um, now, that doesn't speak to, you know, what Peter Smith was doing precisely, because he was kind of on his own mission with some of this, too. But it certainly seems that the campaign intended, you know, to to go out and find people like Peter for the purposes of obtaining what they knew would be stolen material. The episode has always seemed to me to be the example that most shows the gulf between the legal judgments that Mueller is coming to and the moral judgments or historical judgments that a lot of people looking at the thing come to. So on the one hand, you look at it from Mueller's point of view, and it is so uh, trivial as a criminal proposition for one reason or another that you don't even have a discussion in the in the charging uh, decision section about whether you should bring cases on right. it because for one reason or another it's so far from chargeable. Uh, on the other hand, when I read it, my stomach turned over. Yeah. You know, like like wow, this is an <clears throat> example of Donald Trump himself directing Michael Flynn himself to go deal with whoever he has to deal with in order to get those emails. And Flynn turns around and subcontracts it to people who at least think 
they're dealing with Russian hackers to get it done. And so it, it strikes me as the, the, this huge gulf between the sort of historical judgment of collusion and the legal judgment that Mueller comes to. Yeah, I think that, that's a good way of looking at it. And I mean, and look, ultimately, it'll be the historical and the moral judgment that's the one that probably lasts and that ultimately in 2020, voters will have to factor into their decisions on whether they want to reelect the president. I read the report and in, in, in the way that it really laid it out as a narrative and, as you said, I mean, advanced even beyond where our reporting was, as, in my mind anyway, of Mueller saying, I'm not going to indict someone for this, but this is damning information, right? Here are multiple examples, a consistent pattern of behavior and narrative of the president directing his aides to go out and engage in activity that they absolutely would have had to have known would have been criminal or at least have some suspicion that it could be criminal because, after all, the emails were supposedly, you know, wiped off of her server. That's a crime to or just taken off of her server. Um, so to me, that has always been, and that was always what was so striking about Peter's story too. I mean, when I was talking to him, I mean, it was not clear that he'd committed a crime, and he was very clear about saying too that there were certain things he didn't want to do because he didn't want to be committing a crime. Like for instance, paying the hackers. He kept insisting, like, wouldn't ever paid anyone. Now, there's some evidence that suggests maybe that's not entirely true, but it's going to be hard to resolve that now that he's gone, I think. And Mueller doesn't seem to, to, to go to it either. But when we told that story, what we were trying to say was, look, you know, put aside the question of whether there was any criminality going on here. This is pretty, uh, you know, in the gutter type of stuff. This is an American citizen going out, actively seeking Russians who he believed were targeting the then Secretary of State in order to damage her candidacy. I mean, the intention that he had, the motivation that he had, is frankly, it's a lot like Julian Assange's. It's a lot like the Russian government's. You know, I mean, it's the same It's the same operation that he's proposing. And he was very clear that once they got this information, what they would do with it, they would disseminate it in order to hurt Hillary Clinton's campaign. And was his impression that the Russian hackers he was dealing with were the Russian government or was it was he imagining some kind of sort of like hacker collective like anonymous Russia um, like who was he who did he think he was dealing with other than that they were Russian I, I got the distinct impression that he believed that in Russia that the lines between the state and criminal enterprise were fairly blurry as to be largely meaningless which is true frankly when it comes particularly to hacking um, and he he always said that these are people who we believed had connections to the Russian government. Now, we never fleshed that out entirely, like, well, what do you mean? Were they operating on behalf of? Were they government employees? Were they doing it with the government's knowledge and kind of, you know, uh, um, acquiescence? Um, but he was under no illusions that this was, you know, some kind of vigilante group or, uh, you know, public interest group operating in Russia. I mean, he believed that these people would ultimately be connected back to the government. So yet another piece of the story that shows Peter was willing to do business with not just Russian hackers, but Russian hackers who he believed to be connected to the Kremlin. At the end of the day, do you believe this was an old man's uh, fantasy that he got kind of taken for a ride uh, by some sort of shysters on the internet? Uh, or in your best guess, does this in any way dovetail with reality? I think that P 
Peter was obsessed and got ahead of himself. I don't think that he made contact with people who had Hillary Clinton's 30,000 emails because I don't think Hillary Clinton's 30,000 emails are on the dark web. Right. Just just to remind people, there is no evidence that Hillary Clinton's so-called missing emails were anything other than deleted by uh, the people who dismantled her private email server. Right. But what I do think is that, you know, Peter was engaged in an effort that the Trump campaign was also engaged in, that this woman, Barbara Ledeen, who is another person we haven't talked very much about, was also engaged in around the same time who Michael Flynn was also talking to. So in that sense, it dovetails with what the campaign was up to and that there were different groups of people, all of whom were obsessed with this idea of finding incriminating information about her and putting it out there for the world to see. I have to imagine, and if I'm taking Peter at his word, and I have no reason to doubt him, that he was contacted by multiple groups claiming to be hackers who had this material, that the word got out. Um, I have to imagine that it's possible that the word got out in the hacker underground that the Trump campaign was interested in this information. And then that quite possibly drew people to it, uh, you know, uh, who were trying to, to scam him or... Who knows? Maybe there were people who came out of the woodwork thinking they too had found the emails and finally they were going to get them to someone. It's this, it's this mix of people who are, you know, like Peter Zealots who were somewhat misguided. And I'm sure probably a mix of people who are just opportunists and trying to take advantage you know, of what they saw as an old man who didn't know how technology worked. Um, all of those things can be sort of overlapping, right? Sloshing around on each other. Uh, what I just found so striking is... And, you know, and, and kudos to Mueller and his investigators for bringing this up is, you know, clearly Peter Smith was not the only one with this idea. And, you know, Mike Flynn was absolutely that linchpin between Peter and the campaign. And, uh, you know, I think that when he finally tells a story, it'll be very interesting to know from him. Did you think that Peter Smith had actually found these things? You know, were you doing this just to placate the boss and say, oh, fine, I'll go out and I'll be able to tell Donald Trump that I looked for Hillary Clinton's emails and sorry, couldn't find them? Or did he actually believe it? And what more did he know about what Peter Smith was doing? Those are still questions that I think would, would fill out the story and help us really understand was this kind of this quixotic, improbable operation uh, by these sort of, you know, overactive imaginations? Or was there something actually more sophisticated to it and even more deeply conspiratorial than we know even from the report? When you first reported this story, uh, you were aware that Peter Smith was representing himself as working with Mike Flynn. And knowing the kind of reporter you are, there's no way you go to press with this story without asking Mike Flynn's people, hey, Peter Smith says, um, you know, he was working with you guys. the story about Mike Flynn's role in this is dramatically different in the original reporting than is in the Mueller report. Did Flynn lie to you? Oh, I think he did, yeah. I mean, not directly, but I think that through his spokespeople, yes. What What was his claim at the time about The claim at the time was, I mean, there was no, there was, I mean, look, there was, and I feel more liberated to talk about this now that the report is out and frankly because the version of events that were 
recited to us are so dramatically at odds with what really happened. Um, uh, you know, it was, yes, Michael Flynn is, knows who Peter Smith is, uh, and was aware that he was looking around for something about emails, and occasionally Peter would send him emails updating him, and like he would a lot of other people, but that's where it ended. And, you know, the word from the campaign, frankly, was that, you know, we don't, we don't know who this is. We had no involvement with this. And it just turns out to be simply not true. Um, which is not to say that I took them at their word at the time, um, but that was kind of the, the, the version of events that they were giving. Um, it's not surprising. Uh, you know, I, this is, I mean, this, this is, this is not a campaign or administration known for its record of uh, accuracy and truth telling. And I guess, you know, one question I would have looking back on it might be why the interest in lying about it. I mean, frankly, I can, I can see the interest in wanting to lie about this more than I can see why Michael Flynn lied to the FBI about talking to Sergei Kislyak about sanctions. Like, to me, that's just, I mean, I've never understood why Flynn didn't just say, yeah, we talked about sanctions. I mean, I'm the incoming national security advisor. It makes more sense that he might lie about, yes, we were definitely in touch with this 80-year-old operative in Chicago trying to find Russian hackers. Um, but yeah, the, the version that was relayed to us was not true. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of The Report. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and the Democracy Fund, and by listeners like you. To support this project, please go to lawfareblog.com. The report is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. Ian Enright is the executive producer. For the Lawfare team, the project is led by executive editor Susan Hennessy. Editor-in-chief is Benjamin Wittes. Interviews conducted by managing editor Quinta Jurassic. Recordings by Michaela Fogel and Jacob Schultz. Additional assistance by Eugenia Lostri, Vishnu Kanan, and Hadley Baker. To support this show, please share this podcast wherever you can. And while you're at it, please subscribe and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Our website, lawfareblog.com, is where you can learn more about Lawfare, read our work, and support our mission. Until next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.